Welcome to the Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is Episode 2, Waiting for the Tsar. In Episode 1, we followed the ambassadors on their winter voyage up the Baltic Sea from Lübeck to Riga, and then overland to Narva in a convoy of horse-drawn sleds. We pick up the story as Adam Olarius and his companions are waiting for Tsar Mikhail I to authorize their entry into Russia. It is now January 1634, and as the company waits to get moving, I will introduce the ambassadors chosen for the journey by Frederick, Duke of Holstein. First, we have Otto Brueggemann, a lumber merchant from Hamburg who had proposed the mission to the Duke. His business had taken him to Spain and the Netherlands, where he gained some understanding of European trade with Persia. In addition, his brother-in-law was the Shah of Persia's personal watchmaker, and Brueggemann planned to use his contacts to take control of the European silk trade and make Holstein into a textile manufacturing center to rival the Dutch. Also, the Duke's court was deeply in debt, and Frederick jumped at Brueggemann's offer. The second ambassador was Philip Crucius, a skilled lawyer and diplomat who had been elevated to nobility by the King of Sweden, and served as the General Director of Commerce in Estonia and the northwest region of European Russia. The other core members of the group were not, strictly speaking, ambassadors. Johann Albrecht von Mendelslo, a young friend of Adam Olarius and a former page to the Duke, joined the group as an attaché. He left the expedition in Persia and traveled to India in 1638. He embarked for home in January 1639, returning via Sri Lanka, Madagascar, the Cape of Good Hope, England, and the North Sea, finally arriving in his hometown of Gatorp in May 1640. He died in 1644 at the age of 28 after enlisting with French forces fighting in the Thirty Years' War. Depending on which source you read, he either died in battle or from smallpox in Paris. Valerius published the account of his friend's trip as a supplement to the voyages and travels of the ambassadors, but scholars believe that two-thirds of Mandelslo's story was actually written by Olarius and Dutch diplomat Abraham de Vickfort, who translated the works into French. As a side note, de Vickfort was incarcerated for a year in the Bastille by Cardinal Mazarin, the infamous Italian cardinal, diplomat, and politician who served as chief minister to kings Louis XIII and Louis XIV of France. After his release in 1675, he moved to The Hague and was subsequently sentenced to life in prison by the Dutch government for treasonous relations with the French. He escaped, moved to Germany, and died there in 1682. Paul Fleming knew Olarius from the University of Leipzig and was hired by Duke Frederick as a scholar and travel poet, responsible for writing official poems to glorify the group's progress or memorialize birthdays, engagements, and other important events. Born in Hartenstein in 1609, many of his first poems were written for funerals and weddings in war-torn Leipzig of the 1630s, although most of his poetry was published posthumously. Upon returning from Persia, Fleming earned a doctorate in medicine from the University of Leiden in the Netherlands. He traveled to Hamburg in the spring of 1640 and fell ill on arrival. He composed his own epitaph on March 27, 
and died of pneumonia on April 7. Several collections of his poetry were published after his death, edited by Hilarius. Today, Fleming is considered one of the greatest German poets of the early 17th century. Adam Olarius, who describes himself as the secretary of the embassy, was born Adam Olschlegel in the central German town of Aschersleben, probably in 1603. The son of a tailor, he studied theology, philosophy, mathematics, astronomy, and geography at the University of Leipzig. In the fashion of German humanists of the time, he Latinized his name, earned a master's degree, and a reputation as an outstanding scholar— and in 1630 he became assistant director at the St. Nicholas School in Leipzig. The position didn't pay much, so in 1632 he joined a co-op of eight university instructors who supplemented their income by selling beer to students. As the youngest member of the co-op, Hilarius collected the beer money and made sure students returned to their rooms by curfew. Philip Crucius recruited Olarius for the Holstein mission in 1633. Olarius recommended his friend, Paul Fleming, and the two of them left Leipzig in August and joined the mission in Hamburg. In May 1631, the starving Catholic army under Field Marshal Count Tilly and Cavalry General Gottfried Pappenheim laid siege to Magdeburg, a mere 80 miles from Leipzig. Magdeburg, an important early building block of modern Europe, was first mentioned in documents from King Charlemagne's reign and dated 805 AD. By the late 1100s, her approach to municipal law was being adopted by cities across Germany. In 1629, her citizens deposed the Catholic Council and signed a pact with Protestant Sweden. She was sacked on a windy Monday morning in May 1631. C.V. Wedgwood's essential 1938 narrative of the war provides a moving and gruesome account. Drunk with victory, the troops defied all efforts to control them, Wedgwood wrote. Tilly, riding among the tumult, was seen unhandily nursing a baby which he had plucked, living, from the arms of its dead mother. A dauntless old monk, defenseless in his white habit, did what he could and managed to lead about 600 to safety. Pappenheim had fired one of the gates during the assault, and towards midday, flames suddenly shot up at almost the same moment in 20 different places. Rapidly, whole quarters were cut off by walls of smoke, so that those who lingered for booty or lost their way or lay in drunken stupor in the cellars alike perished. Far into the night the city burnt and smoldered for three days after, a waste of blackened timber around the lofty Gothic cathedral. To prevent an outbreak of plague, Tilly had the bodies thrown into the Elbe River. For miles along the banks below the city, the current washed the swollen corpses among the reeds, where birds of prey gathered screeching above them. Of the 30,000 inhabitants of Magdeburg, about 5,000 were left, and these, for the most part, women. Our danger has no end, for the Protestant estates will without doubt be only strengthened in their hatred by this, Tilly wrote to Duke Maximilian of Bavaria. He was right. The destruction of the city was the worst single event of the war, and became known as Magdeburg's Wedding, or Magdeburg's Sacrifice. 
Valerius was not a witness to the catastrophe, but he certainly had intimate knowledge of it. A few months later, on September 15, Tilly plundered Leipzig. City death and marriage records reveal that more weddings were celebrated in 1633, 1634, and 1638 than in any other single year between 1595 and 1680. The high mortality rate of the period left large numbers of widows and widowers, and funeral sermons from this period bear witness to how quickly spouses tended to remarry every time they were bereaved. The year 1632 was especially deadly in Leipzig, and 1634 saw a record number of marriages. It is now January 1634, and our ambassadors have traveled some 200 miles through war-ravaged country from Riga to Narva, where they are waiting impatiently for a Swedish delegation to arrive, and for the most politically opportune moment to depart for Moscow. At the end of the 16th century, there were three principal trade routes linking Russia with European markets. Overland through Poland, by sea via the Baltic, and another across the White Sea from Archangel. Ukraine facilitated trade with the Ottoman Empire, while the rest of Asia used the port city of Astrakhan on the Volga River Delta of the Caspian Sea. It is this last route that our ambassadors will use to reach Persia from Moscow, the same route the Mongols followed in reverse 400 years earlier when they arrived in the Grand Duchy of Vladimir in the year 1226. The Mongols had made first contact with the Russians a few years before that, in 1223, and the messengers sent by Genghis Khan were summarily executed. Unfortunately for the Russians, it was the custom of the Mongols never to make peace with those who have killed their envoys until they have wrought vengeance upon them. And they did not forget about the princes who reigned to the north of the Caspian Sea. All the major Russian cities of the time were conquered by the Mongol horde in 1237, and the invasion continued until 1242. One result of the conquest was the creation of a postal system, called the Yam, that enabled military communications during campaigns and facilitated imperial administration afterward. Marco Polo, who traveled these postal routes along the Silk Road between 1271 and 1295, said that the same services provided to officials of the empire, horses, wagons, lodging, food, and other necessities, were also provided to foreign ambassadors at the expense of the state. The system was adopted in part from the system already in use by the Chinese. The Yam is said to have been established in 1229 by Ogodai Khan, third son and successor of Genghis Khan. As noted in The Secret History of the Mongols, the oldest and most important medieval Mongolian text, dating to the 13th century, Ogodai ranked the system as one of his top two accomplishments. This I have done after I sat on the great throne of my father, he said. I campaigned against the Yakut people and I destroyed them. As my second deed, I had post stations set up so that our messengers could ride in haste all along the way, and for that purpose I had all necessities conveyed to the post stations. The initial routes of communication allowed messengers to ride across people's settlements, not only delaying official business, but also causing the people to suffer. When the messengers ride in haste, we allow them to ride moving freely among the population, 
and as a result, the pace of these riding messengers is slow, and they are an affliction to the people, said Ogodai Khan. Ogodai's reforms not only prohibited riders from galloping across settlements, except in urgent cases, but standardized the distance between stations and the provisions available at each station. At each stage, there had to be a station master, 20 post-horse keepers, geldings to be used as post-horses, sheep, milk, mares, oxen, and carts. The Khan also defined punishment for station masters who failed to keep the station in good working order. If one causes even a piece of string to be lacking, Ogodai said, he shall be guilty and liable to splitting in half along the top of the head. If one causes even a spoon-shaped spoke of a wheel to be lacking, he shall be guilty and liable to splitting in half along the nose. European travelers in the 1200s found that the Mongol peace, Pax Mongolica, had created a politically unified route that allowed merchants, pilgrims, messengers, and envoys to make the entire journey from west to east and back. Once considered a miracle, the completion of such an odyssey was becoming routine. Envoys were given a guide and pack horses, and sometimes rode 130 miles a day on hardy little beasts that were replaced at each station along the way. The Mongol yoke over southwestern Russia ended in 1480, but it wasn't until 1552 that Ivan the Terrible, or Ivan IV, the first Tsar of all Russia from 1547 to 1584, finally defeated the last of the Mongols at Kazan, some 400 miles southeast of Moscow on the River Volga. The Khanate of Kazan, which remained after the disintegration of the Golden Horde in 1502, controlled several important trade routes and passes through the Ural Mountains into Siberia, and persistently raided Muscovy for loot and slaves for the markets of Persia and Turkey. Four years later, in 1556, Ivan annexed the Khanate of Astrakhan, which gave Russia control over the entirety of the Volga River and complete control over the important trade route all the way to the Caspian Sea. It was this route that our ambassadors will travel from Moscow to Persia, but for now they are traveling by horse-drawn sleigh along the postal routes originated by the Mongols, inherited by Tsar Ivan III, expanded by Ivan the Terrible, and now maintained by Tsar Mikhail I. The routes make travel fairly easy, and a distance of 200 versts, an obsolete Russian unit of length in which one verst equaled 1.07 kilometers, can be done in 24 hours. At each station, 40 or 50 horses are kept ready, and station masters provide official travelers with fresh horses and food no matter what time of day or night they arrive. Although Olarius does not say so, European travelers in the early 1800s reported that their yamschiks, sleigh drivers, were almost always drunk and that the job was a favorite of convicted murderers. Adam Olarius structured his narrative so that descriptions of Livonia, a country that no longer exists, in which our ambassadors are currently ensconced, were included in Book 2. For our purposes, we will take the narrative out of order and include some of our author's observations here. Expecting to languish in Narva for six months, the ambassadors attended diverse sumptuous banquets and were invited out walking, riding, and hunting, while their underlings, as Samuel Barron's translation calls them, 
got into frequent fistfights with the soldiers of the garrison. Thanks to Ambassador Brueggemann, similar violent disputes plagued the company for the entire journey, some ending in murder. At the end of February, realizing that the next leg of the journey to Novgorod will be nearly impossible on muddy roads during the spring thaw, Paul Fleming and a few others are sent ahead on the good sledge road, with what Hilarius calls part of the train and baggage. When provisions in Narva run low and their Muscovite hosts are forced to forage up to 80 miles out from the city for fresh meat, 12 members of the group repair to the Baltic port city of Rival, today the city of Tallinn, where the governor welcomes them with cannon fire and sends them on their way back to Narva with more cannon fire six weeks later. When they arrive again in Narva on May 18, the governor welcomes them with cannon fire. This ceremony is repeated by numerous governors as they make their way to Moscow. The Swedish ambassadors, without whom the Germans could not proceed, had finally arrived a few days earlier and immediately dispatched messengers to Novgorod to prepare the way for the border crossing. Baron writes, It is the custom in Russia, as in Persia, that when foreign ambassadors reach the frontiers, they must declare their business and then wait until the ruler of the country is notified by courier of their arrival and sends the governor of the province instructions for receiving and entertaining them. This practice was abolished in 1696 by Peter the Great. While the Swedes go on ahead, Olarius stays in Narva for Pentecost and records his observations of how the local Russian community remembers their dead relatives and friends. The churchyard was full of Muscovite women who had spread the graves with handkerchiefs, the corners of which were fringed with silk of different colors, upon which they had laid dishes full of fish, custards, cakes, and painted eggs. Some stood, others kneeled, asking different questions of their dead kindred, weeping over their graves, and expressing their affliction by dreadful howlings. To Olarius, the display does not seem sincere, for he also notes that the women pay little attention to the dead, instead taking every opportunity to laugh or talk with other people who pass by. Likewise, the local priest conducts his perfuming and praying over the dead in an inattentive and not particularly reverent manner. Servants of the priest collect the dishes full of food, giving some to the Germans, who in turn give them to some poor children, while the priest collects money from the women. Ever the man of many interests, Alarius also goes on at length about the agriculture, economy, and history of Livonia. Livonia is in all parts very fertile, and particularly in wheat, he tells us. The locals set fire to the forests and use the ashes for fertilizer. This process produces excellent good wheat for three or four years because, he postulates, sulfur and saltpeter, which remain with the cinders upon the earth, leave behind them a heat and fatness which produce good crops without the use of manure. This, he reminds the reader, is exactly what the first-century Greek geographer and historian Strabo says at the end of his fifth book, where he speaks on the fertility of the lands near Mount Vesuvius and Mont Gibel, which is Mount Etna, in Sicily. The result of all this Livonian fertility is such an abundance of cattle and fowl, so cheap that many times we bought a young hare for four pence, a heathcock for six, and accordingly others, so that it is much cheaper living there than in Germany. 
He recounts 500 years of Livonian history, mentioning various wars between Poland, Sweden, and the cruel and barbarous Muscovites, and concluding that the people themselves are barbarians who have nothing of their own, but are slaves and serve the nobility in the country and the citizens in the city. He says they are called not-Germans, because the Germans who went there to become farmers did not understand the local language. He does not remind his readers that the collapse of the Livonian order between 1558 and 1625 resulted in the deaths of 180,000 citizens, that over half the peasant households in central Livonia were destroyed in a series of Polish-Swedish wars, or what Swedish commander Johann von Nassau reported from the front in the winter of 1601. Everything and everyone is demolished, burnt or killed, and for many miles no living person is seen, and one does not know whether people have ever lived here. That the peasants kill and eat up one another, that the bodies of criminals are taken from the gallows and the wheel, and in many places even the dead are taken out of their graves by the poor in their extremity. Of course, he does relate that the Gospels are preached there, but that the Livonians are never the better Christians for it, and that they believe there is another life after this, but their imaginations of it are very extravagant. He also includes the very odd details of their ceremonies of marriage. When a country fellow marries a lass out of another village, he goes a horseback to fetch her, sets her behind him, and makes her embrace him with the right hand. He carries a stick to which he attaches a piece of brass money, which he gives to the man who opens the wicket on their way out of the village. A rider playing the bagpipes precedes them, and two friends carve a cross in the door of the house where the marriage is to be consummated, and then they thrust the point of one of the swords into a beam over the bridegroom's head, which is done to prevent charms, which they say are ordinary in that country. The bride scatters little pieces of cloth along the way for the same reason, especially at crossroads and on the graves of little children dead without baptism, who, Hilarius tells us, are buried along the highways. The married couple go to bed as soon as all the guests are seated at the table. They get up about two hours later, and everyone drinks and dances till such time as they are able to stand no longer when they fall down on the floor and sleep together like so many swine. Our ambassadors leave Narva on May 28 and are welcomed, with cannon fire, into the fortress of Kaperga on May 29. On May 31, they encounter a persecution of flies, gnats, and wasps in the swamps around Johannistal, a nascent city about two miles from the Swedish Fort Nienskans, which is today the metropolis of St. Petersburg. According to Olarius, the locals call the insects Russian souls. On June 2, the governor of Nottaburg welcomes them with cannon fire. Known today as the Orishek Fortress, Nottaburg is located on an island where the Neva River exits Lake Ladoga. Roughly 25 miles from Fort Nienskans, it was first built in 1323 as an outpost of Veliki Novgorod, one of the earliest cities in Russia. Olarius relays the story of its capture by the Swedes in 1617. We were told that the besieged Russians held out until only two men were left, writes our translator Baron, when, under the terms of the surrender, all survivors were obliged to quit the fortress with their belongings, only these two emerged. 
asked where the rest were, they answered that all the others had died of a contagious disease. Largely abandoned after the October Revolution of 1917, and almost totally destroyed during the siege of Leningrad in 1941, the fort is now open to visitors as a museum. Its claim to fame, however, is that Vladimir Lenin's older brother, a 21-year-old biology student turned violent revolutionary, was hanged here in 1887 for attempting to assassinate Tsar Alexander III. Historians consider this to be the seminal event that launched Lenin's successful career as a murderous totalitarian sociopath. About a month after arriving at Norteborg, the Russians send word that the Swedish ambassadors will be escorted separately to Moscow, and those from Holstein must remain behind. Valerius obtains special permission to follow along, documenting the ceremony and customs with which the Russians received envoys. As they depart Norteborg, cannons fire the customary salute, just as the boat bearing Swedish ambassador Andreas Berius goes by, and the discharge caused a large timber to fall very close to the ambassador's head, almost killing him. As an aside, Berius is known as the father of Swedish cartography. He worked for the royal chancellery beginning in 1602, was made a member of the Swedish nobility in 1624, and in 1628 was assigned the task of founding what was to become the Swedish National Land Survey. Actually crossing into Russia is a diplomatic comedy of errors. Valerius, of course, is there. Here's the play-by-play. At 4 a.m., the Swedes arrive at the border, a small river some 40 paces wide. They find out that 17 boats are waiting for them on the other side. Wanting to cross without delay, the Swedes send an interpreter to expedite things. The elderly Russian pristov, or conductor, sends a reply. Why the hurry? Do you think his Tsarist Majesty does not have enough provisions to feed you for an extra day? Twelve hours later, the pristov sends another message along with four of his soldiers. What's the problem? Aren't you ready yet? The Swedes reply. We've waited five weeks already, so don't be offended if we decide to wait another day. Besides that, we're tired and we need a nap. It is now afternoon. The Swedes take a nap, because of course everyone knows that most Russians on the Russian frontier take a nap in the afternoon. When they wake up, they ask the interpreter when the Holstein mission will be allowed entry. He says there are not enough boats, carriages, or horses for everyone, and the Germans may need to wait three weeks. At 4 p.m., the Swedes send word to the Pristov that they are now ready to cross, and that the Russians should bring their boats. The Russians send one boat, with 15 well-dressed men aboard. The Swedish ambassadors row out in another boat to meet them, and a strange pas de deux occurs mid-river. The Russian oarsmen are rowing, but their boat is not moving. The Pristov orders this done, Olarius says, to express the greatness of his prince, Tsar Mikhail. The frustrated Swedes notice the delaying tactic and call out to the Russians. Pride is not seasonable at the moment, they say, and procrastinating will be of no advantage to either side. At last, the boats being all come to the middle of the river, Olarius writes, the Pristov advanced and read out of a paper that the great Duke and Tsar Mikhail Fyodorovich, autocrat of all Russia, had ordered the reception of the ambassadors coming from the crown of Sweden and that he had given command they should be provided for, they and their retinue, with provisions and all things necessary, until they came to the city of Moscow. 
The Russians bring the Swedes to the other shore and conduct them to a gentleman's house that Olarius says is hot and black as hell from a fire burning in the stove, no matter that it is the middle of summer and the weather is already hot, where the Russians offer them gingerbread, very strong vodka, and two sorts of very bad mead, which the Swedes only pretend to drink. After passing the liquor around, the Swedes finally give it to Olarius and tell him, in Latin so the Russians cannot understand, Add a pinch of sulfur, and you'd have a drink fit for Hades. The banquet lasts an hour. Finally, the Muscovites fire several musket volleys in welcome, and the Swedes sail up the Volkov River to Novgorod. I returned to Notoborg, Hilarius writes, where our ambassadors waited for three weeks, as the translator had foretold. In the introduction to our tale, John Davies writes that History is a better teacher than philosophy, and more entertaining than romance, but travels are better still. By reflecting on the policy and morality of diverse nations, one finds wisdom and delightfully strange circulations of human nature. And if one can embrace unavoidable hardships, hazards, and inconveniences, one experiences an entertainment and such charming pleasures as cannot be had from books. I hope that you, dear listener, are finding this tale just as charming as any real adventure into Russia could be, and that you will come back to hear the tale of Grigory Kotoshkin, who spied for Sweden and wrote the only expose of 17th century Russian politics, and how he met his untimely end in episode 3 of The Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors. <laughs> ¶¶